This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, I'm Tanya Thompson, writer and creator of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written and performed by Black creatives all over the world. This week, we've got some urban horror for you. Subways and train stations have always creeped me out. I don't know if it's because I grew up in a place where there was no public transportation, or if it's being underground, or if it's just the way those places are, but I get chills every time. And this story by Stephen Allen Payne certainly didn't help my fear of the subway. But before we get started, I want to thank all of our new Nightlight Legion members for helping to support this podcast so we can keep paying Black writers. Get ready, because it's a long list. Ariel, Nancy, Maria, Olaf, Melissa, Roki, Marianne, Nikki, Alexis, Sarah, and Jen. Thank you so much for your support and helping us to fund this episode. Thanks also to Lynn, who made a donation via PayPal, and Ebony, who increased her Patreon pledge. You are all amazing, and we could not do this without you. We are so close to our third goal of funding two episodes per month. If 25 listeners pledge $1, we'll be there, and you'll get another episode this month. Just go to patreon.com slash nightlightpod to join the Legion. Members who join at $5 or more per month get access to bonus content, like the True Frights episodes, Black Lore in which we reimagine creepypasta from a Black perspective, and author chats. Join us today so you get instant access to these bonus episodes. Legion members also get early access to episodes. That's one week earlier than everyone else. You can also follow Lynn's lead and donate via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash nightlightpodcast. Now, the housekeeping is out of the way, and we can move on to the story. Here's The Red Line, written by Stephen Allen Payne and performed by William Lett. She called herself Miss Flo, and she stood outside the 63rd Street Red Line L platform every night, performing a series of rhythmic raps to the beat of a small karaoke box that played the tunes of Mariah Carey. Ozzy Martin usually gave her a buck if he had it, and since she was just getting started as he was leaving work, he decided to make it a good day for her. Remembering where the bad money was, he pulled a wadded tin from his right pocket, dropping it into her bucket. Ozzy had only been at Cherry Copier Place for 13 months, but he'd already been promoted to night shift manager. Not because he had any stellar skills as a copier, or because he'd been a manager before. Because he didn't, and hadn't. He'd been promoted because the shift was from 8pm to 5am, 
and the pay was only 25 cents an hour more than the day shift. Most everyone else had families to get home to. That wasn't an issue for Ozzy. Hey, big guy. Hey. Voice brought Ozzy back to the here and now. He looked to the speaker. The man looked like an enraged Oompa Loompa, scuttling about. You gonna give her money? You ain't give me nothing. He tried puffing himself up to look more threatening. Ozzy, not intimidated, avoided the malignant noise. Hey. The man began following him down the platform. Ozzy kept moving. Distance was what he needed. Hey, I'm talking to you. Don't act like you don't hear me. I know you ain't deaf. I'm two feet away from you. You can see my lips move. He sped up and jumped in Ozzy's path, one foot braced behind the other like he was expecting violence. Ozzy stopped, his breathing rapid and shallow. He gave the chattering man an intense stare until the man lost his impetus and walked off. Ozzy was grateful the confrontation didn't escalate. He had too much on his mind to get into a puerile fistfight on the train. The train pulled into the station with a sound like shattering glass. The enraged man got on, and Ozzy slipped into the compartment ahead just as the doors closed. There was almost no one in the train, a middle-aged woman who looked frightened as she huddled in her seat against the window, a couple about Ozzy's age who were dressed alike and were intoxicated enough to suggest they'd come from a party, and in the rear of the compartment, one of the omnipresent vagrants who used the CTA as a mobile homeless shelter. The vagrant looked like no more than a pile of filthy rags as he slumped in his seat. The train lurched out of the station. From the elevated tracks, Ozzy could see over the rooftops of the crumbling brownstones and six flats. The train speaker announced the next stop, 47th Street, and advised against smoking and drinking. It made Ozzy recall how sneaking a drink on an L train was one of Evangeline's declared favorite acts of small rebellion. Evangeline worked days at Cherry and used to bring Dunkin' Donuts on Friday for the entire staff and leave them in the break room. She would always wrap two in paper towels and leave them in the refrigerator for Ozzy. She'd leave a strawberry and a chocolate cake. Ozzy didn't like chocolate, but he would always leave a thank you note for her. She verged on goth, but never committed fully to either the philosophy or the dress. Ozzy would come early and sit in the break room, and they'd talk about nothing of consequence, yet Ozzy savored her every word. But just a week ago, Ozzy and Evangeline had a falling out. It had been six days, and neither had called the other. And though he'd felt they were inching toward the first relationship Ozzy had experienced in quite a while, he wasn't going to call first. His cell phone pressed against his butt in his back pocket like a tumor. The train pulled into the 35th Street station, and from here until downtown, the area became depressingly desolate. After the next stop, the train would enter the underground tunnel, and Ozzy's cell phone signal would be cut off. If he was going to call Evangeline, he had to do it soon. The smell of an electrical fire rose from the tracks. The operator made no announcement, so Ozzy ignored it. There were smells and sounds that were so much a part of riding the red line at night that they weren't worthy of more than cursory concern. The fragrant was still slumped in the back of the compartment, but something seemed odd about the alignment of his body, like the lower half was angled different than the upper part. Ozzy couldn't really see if he was breathing, but lacked the necessary nerve, or concern, to cross over to him and inquire over his well-being. He saw himself a mirror of the man, only a destination separated one from the other. Nothing waiting for him, just alone, slumped in his seat, rocking to the pitch and yaw as the train screamed around a sharp turn. Ozzy pulled out his cell phone and dialed Evangeline's number. He noticed it was barely 5.15, but he'd already dialed. She would still be asleep. Hello. Her voice sounded weak, but aware, with the usual clarity Ozzy knew she possessed. She probably didn't check her caller ID first, putting the burden on him. Evangeline? Ozzy? He wasn't sure if her tone was hopeful or if he just wanted it to be. He looked across at the scared-looking woman who sneered at him, one of those people who frowned on cell phone use in a public place. 
and hunched over in his seat, lowering his voice. Ozzy felt the train dip as it descended from the elevated tracks to the subway entrance. I'm coming over, he quickly shouted into the phone. I'll be waiting, she hastily replied, and the train went dark as it passed into the tunnel. The brakes squealed when the train took a sudden turn, and the train slowly drifted to a stop. After settling, the lights began to flicker and go out, leaving only faint illumination from the tunnel lights, which were spaced the distance of two train compartments. From around him rose a confused murmur of distress. He's off the train. It was the frightened woman. Ozzy followed her gaze and saw the conductor carrying a large torch walking along the tunnel beside the train. Maybe the track's on fire, Ozzy offered, though it provided little consolation to the woman. He strained against the window to follow the conductor as long as he could. Ozzy pulled the emergency release and forced the doors open when he saw the conductor return. What's wrong? The conductor stopped, took a breath, and wiped his broad hand across his forehead. He was a beefy man with heavy features. We were supposed to switch at the last juncture, but the switcher ain't working. Now we got no electrical. He didn't look at Ozzy as he spoke, wiping his oily hands onto his pants. So what do we do? I gotta get everybody off, walk you to the station. Southbound's on the same track. I gotta warn them off. This thing ain't moving on its own. It's fried. The doors were opened, and the conductor got everyone out. Only eight passengers, counting himself, Ozzy noted, and ushered them down the narrow gangway between the silent, dark bulk of the train and the curved, sooty train wall. How far? The question was shouted over Ozzy's shoulder from the middle-aged woman, and just as quickly the conductor replied without looking back, about four blocks from the Roosevelt station. The lights aligning the tunnel flickered with a buzzing sound like bees, and almost in sequence, they began to go out. The frightened woman let out a shriek of fear, and the conductor barked back to her not to step on the third rail. He heard a rushing, almost like water. It was air pushed ahead. The tunnel ahead was dark, but he could make out movement coming toward them. The train. Get out of the way! The conductor yelled, and took three high steps over the rails, his flashlight beam weaving and bobbing as he ducked toward an alcove along the tunnel. Ozzy followed him in an instant, the others in the tunnel followed suit much slower, until everyone was crammed into the tight alcove. The conductor stepped back out onto the tracks, and began waving his torch at the approaching train. He realized too late that the train wasn't going to stop. A complete terror evolved in the conductor's eyes. And then the train passed them, the weight of air buffeting them hard as it continued down the tunnel. It was a maintenance train carrying a flatbed between two engines. Of the conductor, Ozzy saw no more, just heard a flat smack. Still rocketing with unabated speed, in only seconds the maintenance train collided with the stalled red line train with a sound like the end of the world. The gliding train pushed the red line back about a hundred yards, but as the retreating train hit the curve on the track, it pitched and slammed into the tunnel wall, shooting off a firestorm of sparks. Then the train began to crumple, and the maintenance train pitched violently from side to side where the two flipped from their tracks and came to a tangled mass. What the hell just happened here? It was the Oompa Loompa. He tried to cover his fear with bravado, but the uncontrolled trembling of his hands and the flop sweat showed he was as frightened as anyone. They ran him over. They killed him, one of the passengers said. Ozzy looked out at the seven faces, dim ovoids in the darkened tunnel. No one had any more answers than he. After a moment of indecision, they began moving down the tunnel toward the platform. A few of the people tried their cell phones, but no one could get a signal. The darkness was nearing absolute, with only the frightening sounds of squealing rats racing underfoot and the persistent dripping from the arched tunnel. The air inside felt hot, dry, and the vault of the tunnel over Ozzy's head felt limitless. After more than half an hour, a consensus of grumblings from everyone acknowledged that they should have passed the platform by now and had either kept on past it in the dark or branched off down a different tunnel. A course of debate sprang up with a man in a business suit offering guidance. 
Even if we pass the first platform, the next station can't be far. Downtown, they're never more than a couple of blocks apart. Is everybody still here? The frightened woman intoned. I know I still am, came a voice from the darkness. Let's just count off, Ozzy directed. There were eight of us who got off the train. I remember. So I'm one. There was a long pause, and inevitably, two people chimed in at once. So that's three, Ozzy clarified. Keep going. Four, came the frightened woman. Five, six, there was a long pause, then seven, then silence. You said it was eight. Were you including the conductor? No, eight passengers. Well, we're not going to go looking for whoever it is in the dark. That was the Oompa Loompa. Ozzy recognized the voice, if not the attitude, but he realized the man was right. Eight. The voice came faintly from the dark, almost in a whisper. Nine. Okay, who's joking around? This is silly. It was the man in the business suit who spoke angrily. Ozzy moved close to the small entourage. The faces were faint, ghost-like, his irises wide enough that even meager light registered. He counted faces. Three, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It didn't jibe. He knew he hadn't miscounted. Ozzy was somewhat of a numbers freak, always counting words he saw in ads and in sentences he spoke. Just a blink and a twitch of obsessive compulsive, he always thought. But there were clearly nine people present, counting himself. Then, Ozzy remembered the vagrant. Had he counted him? To the best of his memory, the man never exited the train. Had he ducked out at the last minute, avoiding a collision? And as he got closer to the assemblage, he did smell the particular odor coming from the man. Not the usual amalgam of cheap wine, feces, and urine that became the perfume of many homeless, but a fouler odor. One that seemed to get in his nostrils and not leave. An acidic odor, like something putrefying. And Ozzy noticed he was actually seeing everyone clear. Ahead, a small access tunnel with a round hatch lay open in one of the alcoves. There was scant light coming from it, a bluish light, almost like something electrical. Like moths to the flame, the group crowded toward the smaller access tunnel. There was a short volley of debate as to whether or not they should take the branching tunnel, but when one of the passengers suggested the faint light might be from a tunnel leading to the street, there was not a dissenter in the group. Inside the round hatch was a tunnel much narrower than the subway tunnel, though tracks ran down the center of it. The walls were made of smooth concrete, and a single line of light bulbs stretched down its length. But these lights were extinguished, and the faint bluish glow emanated from a still unknown source. What the hell is this? I don't know, like some kind of CTA repair tunnel? This is that delivery tunnel, the businessman confidently blurted. There were these tunnels the city built back, I don't know, like around 1900, that go under all the stores in the city. They used to use it to deliver stock to the stores instead of driving above ground. Never heard of it. Remember when downtown flooded 20 or so years ago? That's when I heard about this tunnel in the news. The river broke into the tunnels, and all the stores along the avenue had their lower levels submerged. Ozzy had read about it, as everyone in the city had, and filed it away as inconsequential. He remembered reading that the earth removed from the digging of the tunnels became landfill for the creation of Grant Park. But what was important to him was the memory that the tunnels connected to the lower levels of virtually all of the department stores in the downtown area. All they needed to do was find a hatch and walk into some store's basement. Maybe 30 yards into the tunnel, the source of the bluish light revealed itself. 50 feet overhead, a small grating looked out onto the pre-dawn sky. Ozzy stared forlornly up, like someone who felt he was getting his last look at freedom. It wasn't a sound that made Ozzy direct his focus behind him, but the lack of it. He strained to let his eyes readjust to the diminished light in the tunnel, just in time to see what appeared to be a body being drug around one of the branching tunnels. Where were the other patrons of the train? Ozzy was rooted to the spot, not sure. 
more frightened to go it alone than follow the branching tunnel. Ozzy crept at a very slow pace, ears straining to hear anything. Thirty paces down the tunnel, he heard what sounded like a whimpering, animalistic, like a dog he'd remembered who'd been run over by a car, its hind legs crushed. Ozzy kept walking until his foot struck something soft. It was the Oompa Loompa. Though the light was faint, Ozzy could clearly see that the man had been eviscerated, and his left leg below the knee was missing. But he was still alive. He locked eyes with Ozzy. His lips fluttered open. He spoke, but Ozzy wasn't sure what he said. He leaned closer. Gurgling on his own blood, the man summoned the strength to speak louder. Run! Ozzy sprang up, and as he did, he saw someone standing behind him. It wasn't the recognition of the face, the figure was in hard silhouette, but of the acidic smell. It was the vagrant. Ozzy had no doubt over this. Was he the only one of their small party left? And if so, did he know what had happened to the others? Ozzy took a step toward him but stopped. Something about the body configuration was wrong. He seemed larger than before, the outlines of his body less defined, like he had no edges and just shaded into the darkness. His body liquefied, dropping to the filthy floor of the tunnel. But in the pile of soiled rags, there was movement, and several dozen small bodies burst out of it. Ozzy at first thought they were rats, but as they raced off, they looked more like skinned cats, the fangs bared, eyes blazing and staring ahead. Ozzy turned. Just the nicotine-colored darkness of an unknown tunnel presented itself, but Ozzy fled rapidly down it, followed by the malignant sounds of skittering nails and unyielding stone. All coherent thought dispersed within him, only primal feelings of terror motivated him. The tunnel curved and Ozzy hugged the wall close, coming to a stop so suddenly his feet went out from under him and he landed on his butt. A deeper patch of darkness waited ahead of him, weaving like a Wayang puppet figure. How had it gotten ahead of him? Ozzy wondered, until he decided this was its home, its shelter. He remembered the form in the train, body and head covered, the unyielding darkness of the subway tunnel and the blackness in the unvisited access tunnels under the business district. A word was forcing its way into his head. Knock, knock, nocturnal. The illusion of formulating a defense shattered, but running aimlessly was not going to save him, not in the darkest part of the city. Ozzy scanned the branching tunnels, all wells of darkness. He let his eyes adjust until one presented itself as slightly lighter. Feeble or not, it was a hope, and Ozzy indulged in it fully, racing down the tunnel as fast as he could, his feet splashing in water until the light became unmistakably real. The end of the tunnel led to a ladder stretching up to one of the small round grates. Ozzy risked to look back over his shoulder. Just out of the radius of the faint light, the darkness swelled and eddied. Its form wasn't remotely squeezed into an approximation of human. Ozzy looked away and began a stumble up the rusted ladder. As he began to reach the top, he realized how winded he was and didn't want to risk the luxury of pausing to catch his breath. The grate at the top was heavy, almost unmovable, whereas solid like a sewer cap and not a grate, Ozzy wouldn't have had a chance with it. But fueled by adrenaline, he was able to shove it to the side and squeeze out, the opening barely large enough to admit even his slim form. He was in the lower level of a parking garage. Across the street, a brilliantly lit McDonald's shone like a stage set. The dawn was behind him, various shades of salmon. Below him, he heard a banshee sound of winds blowing through the tunnels. He stood for a minute, catching his breath. Perception on his phone came through, and it played the MX's X Gonna Give It To Ya as a ringtone. It was Evangeline, wondering where he was. Hello, we are here today with Stephen Payne, author of The Red Line. Stephen, how are you? 
Well, so far, so good. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. It's cold here in Texas, so... Uh... Oh, please don't talk to me about that. <laughs> I'm in Chicago right now, <laughs> Siberia, which yesterday was negative 19. Oh, oh. Which, of course, meant I had to go outdoors yeah. just to see what that was like. And uh, today, today is a balmy negative nine at the moment. Oh, I'm, very nice. I'm wearing shorts and a, and a, and a white beard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't say anything about the chills down here. I'm a Texas girl, not used to it. It's cold to me, but yeah, I'm glad that I'm not in Chicago. Bless you, you for that. <laughs> you should count your blessing, really. You're on your knees right now with gratitude. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll accept my 46 degree temperatures. <laughs> gratitude now. Uh, so you, can you tell me a little bit about how you came up with the idea for the red line? You know, obviously you're from Chicago. Um, do you ride uh, the red line there? And did you come up with a story while you were writing it or? You know, a lot of the, the horror stuff I write is in my mind, urban horror stories. I sort of base it on urban life. I grew up in Chicago. Chicago is, as we all know, a major big city, but major big cities have large urban areas that sometimes are economically depressed or, or they've just been ignored by the city, so they've started to crumble. And, you know, you, you, I grew up reading horror stories where it was always this, this mansion that was crumbling way off in, in some countryside. And for me, I thought I could turn it around and do a lot of my horror stories set in an environment that I recognize, an urban environment, that still had that kind of haunted feeling because it was falling apart and crumbling. When I was writing The Red Line, yeah, it is because I've, rid I've ridden The Red Line. And uh, The Red Line is a very important rail line in Chicago. We have a lot of subways, but The Red Line is the main artery which I guess is appropriate that it's called the red line. I was going to say yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a main artery, but it's also known because, well, you will run into some interesting characters on the red line. Uh, it's, I've referred to it as a mental institution on rails, but that is kind of an accurate description. It can be a little dicey. It could be rough. People get robbed a lot on the, on the uh, red line, beaten. It's, it's a dangerous place. And for me, places that I've felt are dangerous places or things that have given me a, a just an uncomfortable sense. Those are great things to, to write horror stories about. You just, what you do is you basically, you take your basic fears, but then you launch it into outer space. You make it, you make it much larger than the real horrors that you would find on the red line train. So speaking of urban horror, mm -hmm. well, I'll say like you've coined the term now or urban horror. I don't know that I've ever heard urban horror. I've heard of urban fantasy, <laughs> urban horror so we'll, we'll, we'll credit that to you <laughs> have you ever read any other urban horror out there that you would recommend i can't say specifically i can say that some people have kind of touched on it one author in particular ramsey campbell ramsey campbell's written horror for decades and he's a really really good horror writer he's probably not as well-known as, as the Stephen Kings or, or uh, mm -hmm. people like that. But in my opinion, he's written better horror, at least better for me, because he's written about more of the crumbling urban environment. And, you know, it's, really, it's, it's interesting stuff. If you haven't read his short stories, it's, it's worth it to anyone who really likes horror to go out and grab one of his, his collections and um, give them a read. 
Awesome. So let's continue that train of thought there with the crumbling urban environment. Mm -hmm. So would you consider like post-apocryphal fiction along those same lines? It's just sort of further decayed or is that kind of a separate thing for you? That's kind of a separate thing for me. That's, uh, it's become its own genre right now. Right. Uh, Post-apocalyptic stories are, that's more a kind of almost pseudo-science fiction a lot of times. It's it's post-nuclear war or something like that. And the world, the world has completely changed. So when did you get started writing? Like, have you, have you always been writing or is this something that's fairly new for you? No, I have always been writing uh, since, since I was in, uh, High school, I started writing little short stories that I would show to friends. And, and then after college, I have like one or two short stories published and, and they don't always pay extremely well. So I, I, <laughs> I started aiming for, uh, for bigger things. I wanted to try to get uh, films made. I had a screenplay optioned um, by director Bill Duke. I had a lot of things up in the air, but it was one of those always a bridesmaid, never a bride uh, type of thing. <laughs> I'm familiar with that. Like they, they option so many things and then they just go nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really bad because they'll get all excited about, oh yeah, this is great. We love you. Oh, you're wonderful. You're wonderful. Oh yeah. I was living out in Los Angeles. I was like, this is wonderful. This is great. Then they come by and say, no, no, no. Right. Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind, just because I'm anxious and I'm an anxious personality, mm-hmm. you know, they'll say those things to me like, oh, I love this. This is, you know, this is great. This is, you know, this is going to go really well. And then they kind of, you know, they ghost me. Right. And I feel like, you know, on one hand, people in Hollywood are not afraid to tell the truth. You know, right. they're going to be upfront about it. But on the other hand, I'm kind of like, were they lying to me about it? Or did something better come along? Or how does that make you feel when, you know, like you got, you got something optioned and then it just kind of fell off? Well, you know, one time they optioned a script of mine and it was a science fiction script. They were very excited about it, or at least the director was. And what I found out later, what I began to realize later from clues I had seen and things I heard was that they had never planned on doing my film. My film was, would have had a, a decent-sized budget. And he had, this director had another low-budget script he wanted to do. So he walked into the studio with a higher-budget movie and a low-budget movie, uh, knowing that if he pushed the high-budget movie, they would go for the low-budget movie. Yeah, that happened. You, you were a pawn. <laughs> I was a pawn. I was, and, you know, you, you realize that, you know, he would have been happy doing this because... What made him latch on to it was it was the type of film, as he said, that he really liked. He had a fascination with the type of science fiction film I had written. He had read a lot of books along the line. He was really excited about it. And, but I think he realized the studio wasn't going to trust him. He wasn't an A-list director, and they weren't going to put a six-figure amount in his hand. So he used it as a bargaining chip. And that's kind Not of a yeah, it's smart on his part. Makes you feel bad when you realize, well, that was a year of my life, right? <laughs> right, right. And then you get the ones who are genuinely trying to get the movie going. But the thing, there's Hollywood has never run across a script they couldn't say no to. And it doesn't matter how great your script is. If it's really good, they'll want to make it. But they have never been able to, to, to not say, yeah, we're going to pass on this script. Because it really gets down to the dollars. And it's something you have to respect. I mean, we're asking them to invest a hundred plus million dollars in a dream I had one night. Right. <laughs> yeah. So they're gonna they're gonna make the decision, and it, it's 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 sometimes just like rolling dice, really. Would you say that you prefer writing screenplays over short stories, or vice versa? 
Uh, you know, I, that's a hard one. I would say perhaps screenplays, but it's really a matter for me of making sure that the story itself is really compelling. Uh, and this is where film comes in. I want to also make my story visual, you know, with, uh, with the red line, for instance, not just setting it on the red line train, but, you know, as happens in the, in the story, they end up in a tunnel. I like having the visuals of this tunnel and trying to create that image in everyone's head of this tunnel with sparks shooting off here and there, with faint light in the distance. And that's, that's both something you can do as a story writer, uh, in a short story writer. It's also something you can do as a filmmaker. So right. I'm torn between the two. Same, same. And, and, you know, the thing is, is, you know, now that I've sort of added audio to the mix with this podcast and um, writing for another podcast, I'm having to get out of that frame of mind of thinking visually, which actually wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. Right. Because you just, you just translate what you would see to what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, you're able to create a picture with that sound, which I think is really, really interesting. And I think that that's one of the things that worked really well and your story is the visuals. Like when I got to the part where I read the tunnel, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I was, that was when I got like fully invested in that story. You know, I was like, okay, character's interesting. This is good. This is good. This is good. Oh my God, we're in this tunnel. Something bad is about to happen, <laughs> you know? Right. And I think, you know, using that tunnel as not just, you know, the atmosphere, but also, you know, the setting and centering everything around that tunnel I think is what one of the things that made this work so successful. So I think that was an excellent choice. I was saying the urban horror, it gets back to that in that it's, that's an urban environment that anybody living in a big city like Chicago has encountered. We've gone into that right. tunnel before versus a story that's set in a, you know, an English manner somewhere. Right. <laughs> few of us have actually visited. It's more accessible to people. Yes. I think, you know, I really enjoy Gothic horror. Um, although, you know, I can't say I've ever been to, uh, you know, a Victorian manor of any sort, <laughs> but, but, you know, I still enjoy it, but I also enjoy urban horror because I can find myself in that story yeah. a little bit easier. Would you say growing up, you felt like you could see yourself in any stories or was that something that you had difficulty finding? Don't know if I necessarily saw myself in it. I think I was more of an observer and I could see different types around me in the story. So let's, let's back up a little bit to before high school. Mm-hmm. You said that you started writing in high school. What, what kind of started you on that path of wanting to write? Well, I was an avid reader. You know, one thing, I didn't come from a wealthy family. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. There weren't a lot of luxuries in my family, but one thing my mother did say and do was anytime I wanted a book, she would buy me a book. And so I just, you know, I pulp novels or or great novels, didn't matter to me. I just, I just basically point and my mother would buy me books and I would read all the time. And it was, as you always talk about introducing yourself to a new world, I had introduced myself to this new world, how you could follow the words on the paper and imagine a whole story in your head. And it was, it was something that made me want to tell my own stories because I would read something and say, no, 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 I've got to, well, that makes me think of something different. And no, no, I could do a different story. And that's when I started writing. 
So you said screenplays and stories, you know, both have this component of visualizing Mm -hmm. what's going on. And, you know, you kind of, you like doing both. As a consumer, do you prefer to watch horror or read horror or listen to horror or live horror? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what what Ren is doing, I think we all live horror. But uh, (laughs) uh, when it comes to uh, my choice between the two, I, with horror, in that particular genre, I prefer to read it. It's, uh, if for no other reason, it's simply because movies tend to repeat the same formula, the same mm-hmm. one. And with horror stories, you, if, you, if you really get past sometimes just the big names in horror, you'll find people writing unique little pieces. And, and, and that's more interesting to me than uh, just seeing yet another Hollywood story about, you know, some teenage girls who decide to go down to the lake. Right. <laughs> or a cabin. Or a cabin in the woods, yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's talk about that for just a second. Um, have you seen Bird Box? Yes, I did. Okay. Did you read the book? I did not. I, hadn't, I actually had not heard of Bird Box uh, oh, okay. prior to The Quiet, uh, Quiet Place coming out. Okay. So a little bit of background for those of you who have not read or seen The Bird Box. It's this story by Josh Mallerman. And basically it's, it's sort of an apocalyptical story. Something comes to earth and when people look at it, it makes them go crazy and kill themselves. In the book, one of the things that I really liked is the fact that no character ever sees this monster. Yes. Right. And that was part of, I think, what made it so frightening is that anything you can picture in your head as a monster is probably going to be scarier than what anyone can make. Even if you have this sort of, you know, nebulous idea of the monster itself and you couldn't really explain it to anybody if they asked you, your feeling about that monster is scarier than what you would actually see on the screen. I put off watching Bird Box for a long time because I was really afraid of what they were going to do with that monster. Were they going to give it a shape? Were they going to reveal what it actually looked like? And I was like, I don't, I really don't want to know. I don't want them to reveal that. And it wasn't, it wasn't so much about, you know, the fear. Like um, if anyone listened to the black tapes, there was this um, unsound that was on the black tapes. And, you know, if you listen to the unsound, then, you know, you were going to die within a year or whatever, and, you know, they gave you a chance to, like, fast forward through it so you wouldn't hear the unsound if you didn't want to. And so that kind of made it more frightening, right? Like, do I want to listen to the unsound? Like, I know this is fake, but what if it's not? But with the monster, it wasn't so much that I was scared of seeing the monster. It was, I don't want them to come up with something that's going to replace what's in my head. Yes, that's why H.P. Lovecraft is pretty much unfilmable because he was the he was sort of the star. Even though he gave you a sort of nebulous description, he was the star of creating monsters that never really were defined as clearly right. as traditional horror likes to do. I mean, a vampire is right. a person with fangs. A right? Yeah, you can picture that. You can picture a werewolf. Yeah, right. but you can't picture a Lovecraft monster because it's just kind of tentacles and nebulous, and it's darkness and it's eyes and right. That's a feeling. Yeah. It's a feeling more than it's a thing. And I think those are the most successful monsters or those that evoke feelings. Yes. Um, and that's, rather that's than the music. type of monster I like. I don't, want, I don't want to just say, hey, and this guy walks out and he's like got a big knife. That's not really the type I want. I want this sort of vague feeling where you're looking over your shoulder, but you never fully see what's behind you. Right. Exactly. So did you enjoy Bird Box? I did. And this will sound terrible. I liked 
a quiet place better because I felt as a film, I felt it created its tension more. It did end up showing you the monster, but I think overall it created the sense of tension more. Bird Box I enjoyed because of the fact you don't see the monsters. It's, right. It's a good footfall, 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 but you never see what's walking behind you. I, I don't right. think the film itself, it was as successful as A Quiet Place. It wasn't as well made. I right. I mean, you know, you're right about that. But also one of the things that kind of bothers me is that Bird Box came out before, like the, the book. Oh, yeah. It came yeah. out long before A Quiet Place. And so people are comparing these two things, like Bird Box is kind of like A Quiet Place, but reimagined. That was my dog sniffing the microphone. <laughs> if anybody's interested in hearing that. But, you know, for me, I, I think... I want to avoid those kind of comparisons simply because in my mind, I heard, I read Bird Box before um, A Quiet Place came out. So when I was watching A Quiet Place, I was comparing it to Bird Box. Now as a film, I think A Quiet Place is a better film. If there were a novelized version of A Quiet Place, you know, I'm not sure if I would like it more than Bird Box or not, but I agree with you. There's, there's more tension, um, I think, in in a quiet place versus bird box the yes, movie definitely it's just uh but yeah i agree i would prefer to read bird box yes That's, it's the type of story that i would really like to read i'm not a huge fan of uh stephen king but i have to give Same. credit to this <laughs> i have to give Don't credit say it to, too loudly yeah did, did say it really, yeah <laughs> but uh he uh i gotta say he hit it he hit it on the head when he did the mist I mean, yes. his most Lovecraftian type story. It's obviously very Lovecraftian, but it's right. just the basic idea of being locked in a room with this mist and you don't know what's on the other side of it. That right. is more terrifying, as, you, as you've been talking about. It's more terrifying than just bringing out a cutout of a, of a, of a figure and, and, you know, saying, hey, there's a monster. He's a guy with a knife in his hand. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to tell you all a little secret yeah. here. Um, there's this thing that my husband found one time. It was like, put in, copy paste something you, you wrote into this box and we'll tell you what writer you write like. And I got Stephen King. Ah. And I was like, but no. (laughs) (laughs) The only person in history that was upset by this. And he was like, why are you upset by that? He's like a best-selling author, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I just think he's a little too wordy. And I don't think I'm wordy, but maybe I am. I don't know. (laughs) But I'll have to see if I can find a link to it. If I, if I can find a link to it, again, I'll send it to you and you can drop in your prose and see, and see who you sound that. like. And I'll put it in the show notes if I find it. Yep. So <laughs> listeners can do the same thing. It, it's interesting. I, you know, I'd be interested to do it again mm-hmm. now because this was maybe five years ago. Okay. So, you know, obviously, like I've grown as a writer in those five years and, you know, my tastes have changed and, and things like that. So I'd be curious to know what, what it says now. So can you tell me a little bit about where you are right now in your career as a writer? Uh, well, I'm not at the point where I'm fully supporting myself, but I'm at the point where I knock out a lot of my bills with it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm ap- approaching a happy place with it. I, uh, I do lots of different types of writing other than just uh, horror fiction. I, do, I, do, uh, I have a nonfiction book out on the market called Grail Pages. I wrote a book about people who are uh, who collect original comic book artwork and pay enormous amounts of money for it. Uh, it began as an article, 
And uh, I ended up just going to a publisher with it and they liked the idea. So I've got that out there. I'm always doing little small projects here and there with my writing. I have written and done short films. So between all the money, if I sweep it all together, I usually end up knocking rent out or something like that every month. So (laughs) yeah, so I'm on the, I'll put it as on the way up, making, making enough money that I actually have to file taxes on it. Ouch. But, uh, <laughs> but hey, that's a good problem to have, right? Yes, exactly. Um, my ga- my goal is to reach the point where it's 100% uh, taking care of everything. And hopefully I'm there in the next couple of years. So what percentage of your work or your, your income would you say comes from the nonfiction work versus your fiction work? Hmm. Actually, a little more off the nonfiction. Maybe about 65, 70% of my money is off the, um, or actually 65, 70% off of the fiction. Work. Off of the fiction. Yes. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah, non nonfiction is great because you can always get an article somewhere or something like that to plug up a deficit in your income. But it's, right. it's the fiction that I am really focusing on. Right. So how can we support you? How can we get it so that you don't have to work for the man anymore? There you go. And you can just pay all of your bills through writing. Where can we buy more of your work? Who can we tell about you? Tell oh. us how we can support you. All right. Well, uh, first, just give me money. You see me, just hand me money. That's always a good thing. <laughs> but uh, beyond that, like I said, I have a book, a nonfiction book out called Grail Pages. That actually did very well. I, I get emails from people in other countries saying, oh, yeah, I, 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 um, I read your book and it was really great. And I mean, comic books have become a major, a major thing now. I mean, we used to just be something a few geeks read and children read, but it's, as you know, it's become very mainstream. And since it addresses comic, comic book art collecting, uh, it has done quite well for me. I, I remember I went to Paris uh, a couple years ago and I was at Shakespeare and Company, the, the bookstore there. And I went in and I saw my book there. And that's when I said, well, I guess I've made it now. <laughs> <laughs> I met Shakespeare and Company. Right. You can always get that on Amazon. It's sold on Amazon and a few other uh, sites. But uh, bookstores, but there are no bookstores anymore, unfortunately. Well, there's book people here in Austin. It's a pretty big independent bookstore. Like people ah. flock from all over the country. It's a great place. Otherwise, if you're a reader of horror, if you read some of the horror magazines, I've got... I've got a few actually coming out this year. So if you see the advanced publications and you see my name there, please be sure to buy it and write a letter and say, oh, what a great writer this guy is. So I can sell him another story. (laughs) There we go. I like it. I like it. If you want, Stephen, what you can do is you can email me or you contact me on Twitter or anywhere I am online and let me know when you have release dates for these things um, okay, be pre-ordered or when um, they're available to buy and I will share it out to the wider world uh, good. Twitter I've got, got a really nice epistolary short story that's coming out and uh, ooh, I love those yeah this one is an interesting <laughs> one for me so uh, I'll definitely send you a link to that one Yes, please do. Please do. I would love to read it, um, not just for myself, but so that I can share it with everyone else and so that we can support you so that you can make gobs and gobs of money and pay all your bills. <laughs> there you go. Um, do you have a website that we can visit? No, no. Do you have social media? I don't. This is, I know. Also, I know. I'm sort of out of it in, in that. I, uh, but no, that's I'm, a good thing, though. You know, like sometimes I wish that I didn't have to be 
just because like my background, like I'm better at social media marketing and, and it makes sense for me to leverage social media as the thing. It's easier for me to do social media marketing just because that's my professional mm -hmm. background. And so, you know, it makes sense for me to do that. But if I had a choice, like I would, I would unplug from everything because I find that as much time as I spend on social media, like doing something productive and trying to get myself gigs and getting the word out and trying to, you know, monetize, you know, my writing, my platform, myself, you know, all of that, I could get so much more writing done if I didn't have to maintain a website, if I didn't have to post on social media. So, yes, you know, that was my thing in the beginning, everyone said you need social media. So I opened up a Facebook page and because I, I would do short films and uh, market them on video on demand. And uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to get a Facebook page and I'm going to use that to market my movies. And next thing I know, I'm arguing with people online about <laughs> yeah. political. And it's I so easy to get derailed. It is. I'm wasting hours sitting online saying, no, the president is crazy. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. Like talking. I just said, I can't do this to myself. I could use this. Yeah. You love yourself too much to do that. Yes. I can write yeah writing. Yes, I think it's a good choice. I, I don't think you should change that until someone will give you money to change yeah. that. There you go, money. Money talks, money yeah. talks. So thank you so much for being with us today, Stephen. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I hope you have a great day and I hope you get warm soon. Th thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, if we want to keep this train going, we need your help. Go to patreon.com slash nightlightpod to join the Nightlight Legion and get members-only perks or contribute via PayPal at paypal.me slash nightlightpodcast. Story edits this week by me, Tanya Thompson. Audio production courtesy of Jen Zink of the Skiffy and Fanty podcast, who just happens to be for hire. Visit her at jenzink.wordpress.com. There will be a link in the show notes. I hope to see you in two weeks with another episode, but if not, I'll see you in March for another creepy tale. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.